Chapter Eleven, Part Two of Immortality and the Unseen World by W. O. E. Westerly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven: Mourning and Burial Customs. Seven: Lamentation and Wailing. Genesis Chapter Thirty-Seven, Verse Thirty-Four. And Jacob rent his garments and girded sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days second samuel chapter three verses thirty one through thirty four and david said to joab and to all the people that were with him rend your clothes and gird you with sackcloth and mourn before abner and king david followed the bier and they buried abner in hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of abner and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, and said, etc. Compare Second Samuel chapter 2 verse 12, Ezekiel chapter 27 verse 32, etc. The wailing expressed itself also by cries of, Ho! Ho! First Kings chapter 12 verse 30, Jeremiah chapter 22 verse 18, chapter 34 verse 5. It was accompanied or introduced by the sounds of pipes or flutes. Jeremiah chapter 48 verse 36. Compare with Matthew chapter 9 verse 23 and chapter 11 verse 17. There were professional mourners, such as are skillful of lamentation. Amos chapter 5 verse 16. Especially women. Call for the mourning women that they may come and send for the cunning women that they may come and let them make haste and take up a wailing for us jeremiah chapter nine verses seventeen and eighteen the lamentation also developed into poetry with a special rhythm called the kinostrophe used on special occasions compare second chronicles chapter thirty five verse twenty five at first sight we should imagine that lamentation for the dead is such an obvious and natural thing that no explanation could be needed indeed some might feel inclined to say that it is quite inappropriate to reckon it among mourning customs as lagrange puts it this must be regarded as an outburst of affectionate feeling which is sufficiently explained by its nature and undoubtedly this is true so far as it goes but there are reasons for believing that in addition something else originally played a part in wailing for the dead if this was and always had been only the natural outburst of affection why did one need professional mourners and professional flute players further let the passage zechariah chapter twelve verses ten through fourteen be studied and it will be seen that the formal way in which the mourning as for an only son is spoken of that something else besides personal grief for the departed is in question it points to a fixed traditional ceremonial in mourning as one writer on the subject says this passage quote, makes for the view that the lament for the dead was a religious ceremony conducted under rules handed down by tradition it will be instructive to glance at the usage among some other peoples although according to langdon the sources offer but meagre material on the subject of wailing for the dead there is nevertheless sufficient to show that it was customary among the babylonians and assyrians the official wailer is referred to on an ancient sumerian inscription together with his pay in the gilgamesh epic it is said that the hero mourned for his friend six days and six nights in the reign of ashurbanipal one of his officials who died was mourned for his burial and the accompanying ceremonies are thus described quote, the tomb was made he and the women of his palace rest in peace the psalms are ended 
they have wept at the grave a burnt offering has been burned the anointings are all performed ceremonies of incantation penitential psalms they have finished elsewhere it is said that three days mourning and wailing took place on the death of the mother of king nabonidus and the official mourning went on for a month pinchet gives the translation of a long inscription on which wailing for the dead is mentioned several times we are told further of how at the burial of an assyrian king the leader of the music with his mourning women began their music when the mourners had all assembled on another inscription it is said the wives wailed and their friends responded on another text mention is made of the stool of mourning or else as jastro says in his note on the passage the place of wailing again concerning the ancient arabs we are told that the period of wailing lasted seven days it was the duty of the female relatives to do the wailing they were called redadat that is the responders among the greeks wailing and lamentation took place during the different stages of a funeral not only by the relatives and friends of the deceased but also by professional mourners these were of both sexes the women especially sang dirges over the dead flute-playing was also a customary element in the wailing for similar rites on a more exaggerated scale among the savage peoples see fraser the belief in immortality where it is clearly shown that wailing as an expression of grief is only a subordinate element in the mourning for the departed there is also a striking uniformity of custom among different peoples in this matter and there is no getting away from the fact that we must look for some additional reason beyond the expression of sorrow at the loss of a friend or a relative to account for the form of this mourning custom a number of explanations have been offered to account for the origin of this custom one thing seems quite certain and that is that although some one dominant reason apart from natural sorrow may underlie the right it is not that one alone which sufficiently explains it as in a number of other mourning customs there were probably several reasons why this thing was done ancient and modern men are alike in this if in nothing else that they are always willing to hit two birds at least with one stone it appears to us that this is illustrated so far as early man is concerned by this mourning custom rhoda shows good grounds for the view that the exaggerated forms of lamentation both among the ancient greeks and among savage peoples were in the main due not to natural affection he would not of course deny that this was one element but to the belief that the spirit of the deceased was present and witnessed with delight the tokens of affection for him if on the other hand these indications of regard should have been omitted it was believed that the chagrin of the departed spirit might vent itself upon the survivors and make things very disagreeable for them other authorities hold that the wailing and especially the shrill screaming and other hideous noises had the effect of driving away the demons who were supposed to gather in the vicinity of a dead body this is undoubtedly the reason in some cases it is possible that there was yet another element in this custom of wailing it may have had the purpose of recalling the dead either in the hope that he might come back or to make quite sure that the soul had permanently departed this time we have referred to the belief in the external soul above and was not merely in a deep sleep we recall the cry of the ancient arabs which they uttered on the grave of the departed be not far 
in talmudic times among the jews the funeral procession was accompanied by professional mourning women the minimum allowed was two flute players and one mourning woman they struck up their lamentation as soon as the procession started sometimes they leapt on to the bier and continued their cries there at times the lamentation took an antiphonal form at others it was a general chorus this custom continued as long as the jews lived in palestine and babylonia or in the midst of a jewish colony in the dispersion it has now long ceased among the jews of the west eight some miscellaneous customs there are a few minor customs which may conveniently be grouped together the taking off of the sandals in the presence of the dead is referred to as a sign of mourning in ezekiel chapter twenty four verses fifteen through eighteen compare second samuel chapter fifteen verse thirty and isaiah chapter twenty verses two through four in these last two passages there is no reference to the dead it is another example of a custom originally practiced in mourning for the dead being adopted by mourners in face of a public calamity lagrange regards this merely as complementary to the taking off of one's clothes in order to put on sackcloth the original meaning is probably deeper than this to get at the significance of mourning customs which touched the most deeply seated of human emotions one must try to envisage things from the point of view of uncultured man not from that of the modern we have already more than once seen reason to believe that just as modes of expressing sorrow and distress were derived from the customs in vogue in primitive times of mourning for the dead so also some of the conceptions regarding the relationship between men and the deity and the means of keeping this up were also held when it was a question of the relationship between the living and the dead both sprang from similar emotional instincts the elements of fear and reverence the sense of mystery due to the belief in the reality of the presence of one who was invisible were common to both we are justified therefore in explaining some warning customs at any rate on the analogy of religious rites performed in the presence of the deity in the story of the burning bush the command comes from moses put off thy shoes from off thy feet for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground exodus chapter three verse five compare joshua chapter five verse fifteen the holy presence demands definite signs of reverence compare ecclesiastes chapter five verse one we are reminded of the practice at the present day of the mohammedans who always remove their sandals when they enter a mosque the removal of the sandals in the presence of the dead then was in its origin due to reverential awe it was thus not strictly speaking a mourning custom though practiced by mourners it is possible that the covering of the head had a similar origin in a passage just referred to second samuel chapter fifteen verse thirty it is said of david and of those who went with him that he had his head covered and all the people that were with him covered every man his head and they went up weeping as they went up compare jeremiah chapter fourteen verses three and four the idea that this was done in order to hide one's grief betrays ignorance of the oriental character we all know of the ancient as well as of the modern oriental shows that he prefers to share his grief it is far more likely that on the principle of what has been said above it was due to the feeling of awe in the presence of the supernatural just as elijah covered his head with his mantle when Yahweh was passing by, First Kings chapter nineteen verse nineteen. Covering the lips, Micah chapter three verse seven, Ezekiel chapter twenty-four verses seventeen and twenty-two, 
and laying the hand on the head second samuel chapter thirteen verse nineteen may have been due to the same cause some would see in the covering of the head a means of averting the evil eye among the arabs a fine-looking man will often cover his face when in a crowd lest the evil eye should be cast upon him the mourning customs so far dealt with have all been acts done by mourners to or for themselves primarily in some cases the act is certainly intended to affect the departed as well but in all of them it is first and foremost something that the mourners do to or for themselves now we come to consider some customs and rites which are accomplished by the mourners first and foremost to or for the dead whether for the corpse or the released soul and here again there are some cases in which in all probability the mourners have an eye to themselves but it is to or for the dead that the initial act is undertaken nine closing the eyes of the dead in genesis chapter forty six verse four the following words to jacob are put into the mouth of god i will go down with thee into egypt and i will also surely bring thee up again and joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes looked at from the modern point of view this act suggests nothing more than the outward expression of dutiful affection and in the passage quoted the only one in the old testament in which the custom is alluded to we are evidently intended to understand nothing more by it than this it was a comfort to jacob to know that this final act of filial affection would be accorded him but when we come to observe the similar custom among other peoples the conviction is forced upon one that although the sign of affection may always have been an element there was originally some other purpose in it as well that it was done among the arabs and babylonians may be taken for granted since so many mourning customs were identical among the semites so too among the greeks and various other peoples in all parts of the world the object of the rite has been variously explained noach thinks that the purpose was simply to make the departed appear as sleeping but there is reason to believe that the custom originally meant more than this in the mishnah it is said that quote, one may not close the eyes of the dead on the sabbath and not on weekdays at the going forth of the soul he who closes the eyes at the going forth of the soul behold he sheddeth blood the curious expression the going forth of the soul may simply mean the moment of death and to close the eyes before this takes place is as it were to curtail life for a few moments and thus a shedding of blood but in view of the fact of the widely spread belief that the soul resides in the pupil of the eye it may mean that to close the eyes prematurely is to prevent the free flight of the soul which is compared with shedding of blood another directly contradictory explanation is that by closing the eyes wherein the soul resides one is able to retain it a little longer among the living the latter explanation is not very convincing because in any case it was believed that the soul continued near the body for some time after death yet another explanation based upon the widespread belief in the gathering together of demons where a corpse is is that both the closing of the eyes and every other opening of the body was effected in order to prevent demons from entering it finally there is the explanation that this was done in order to avert the evil eye this assumes an entirely different belief as to the feelings of the departed towards the survivors 
unless it be held that a demon utilizes a dead man's eye. But it is evident that among some peoples this was the cause of the rite, for it was done from behind the corpse, never from the front, lest a look from the not-yet-closed eye should be cast upon the person performing the rite, to his very great detriment. 10. Kissing the Dead Genesis chapter 50 verse 1 And Joseph fell upon his father's face, and wept upon him, and kissed him. This occurs after the account of Jacob's death in the previous verse. Here it is clear that nothing more than an outward expression of affection is in question. But there are cases on record in which this widespread custom among various races had a different object and meaning, and in which it was evidently parallel with a ceremonial touching of the corpse. Further, if there is any justification at all in the contention that, in seeking the original meaning and object of a custom, analogies may in some cases be drawn from men's actions when they believed themselves to be in the presence of the deity, and the majority of authorities seem to hold this view, then it may be that one element, at all events, in this custom, in its origin, was analogous to that of kissing or stroking an object in which a deity was supposed for the time being to be present. In Hosea chapter 13 verse 2 it is said, And now they sin more and more. They say of them, Let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. Compare 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 18. Yet will I leave me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. A similar rite is referred to in Job chapter 31 verses 26 and 27. Of the same nature was the custom among the Arabs, still practiced by Mohammedans, who kissed the black stone or Kaaba at Mecca, or else touched it with the hand. The object was to effect close contact with the divinity supposed to reside in the stone. Others believe that, so far as the kiss is concerned, the idea was that, quote, in some way the breath was the life of man, and that giving a part of the breath to the object adored was in the nature of a sacrifice. Close quote. Among the ancient Greeks, the nearest relative received the last breath of the dying man in a kiss. This was the act of the departing person to the living. Presumably the object here was that of transferring the life of him who was departing to his posterity. There are thus several ways of explaining the origin of the custom. We are inclined to believe that the first explanation comes nearest to the original meaning of the rite. Reverential awe and affection would easily run into one another on such occasion. To the ancient Israelite, there was the belief of being in presence of the supernatural when he stood by the dead body of his father. Yet affection for the departed must have been one of the predominant elements. That superstitions of some sort were connected, in much later times, with the kissing of the dead, seems to be the natural inference, from the fact that it was forbidden by a church council, namely that of Osser in 578. Whether the custom of circumambulation around the corpse, either an act of reverence for the departed, or a magical rite to prevent the return of the soul, was ever in vogue among the ancient Hebrews, cannot be said. But it is a widespread custom. Among the Sephardic Jews it has been practiced, apparently, from time immemorial. And at the present day it is always done. Seven circuits are made around the bier, during which prayers for the departed are chanted to a plaintive melody. In substance, some of those are believed 
to date back to the time of Hillel, circa 30 B.C. to 10 A.D. 11. Treatment of the Corpse That we have but scanty references in the Old Testament to the treatment of the corpse immediately after death does not, of course, mean to say that there was any neglect in this respect. It simply means that only rarely did occasion arise for mentioning any details. We have ample information on the subject, so far as the Jews of later periods are concerned, and knowing the rigid conservatism in all that has to do with mourning customs, we are justified in believing that the customs of later times hold good for earlier periods as well. True, there are exceptions here. Whatever the reasons may have been, ancient customs were sometimes modified, and in some cases fell out of use altogether. The later customs have come into vogue which were unknown in earlier ages. But unless there are good grounds for believing the contrary, one may say that, in general, customs practiced among the Jews, say, at the beginning of the Christian era, had been in use centuries before. So far as the washing of the corpse is concerned, the Old Testament is silent. But in Acts chapter 9 verse 37, this is mentioned as the ordinary thing. In the Mishnah it is said that it must be done, even on the Sabbath. Among the Arabs, the corpse was washed by the nearest relations and friends of the deceased. Sometimes the water was mixed with salt or with camphor, but those who fell in battle and martyrs were not washed, but were buried in their blood. Concerning the Babylonians and Assyrians, we have no information on the subject, but it may be taken for granted that it was done. That it was certainly practiced among the Greeks, we know from various sources, for example, Iliad, the anointing of the corpse is not mentioned in the Old Testament, but it was probably done, at any rate, among the wealthier classes. Compare in the New Testament, Mark chapter 16 verse 1, Luke chapter 14 verse 1, John chapter 12 verse 7, chapter 19 verse 40. In Talmudic times, it was customary to place metal vessels on the body and to lay it on sand or salt. This was done to postpone corruption, which supervenes so soon in eastern climates. Among the Babylonians, the corpse was rubbed with milk, honey, oil, and salt. Spices were also laid upon it. The Arabs, too, frequently used spices for this purpose. The Greeks poured oil over the body. The purpose of these two customs was, no doubt, the temporary prevention of corruption. They were probably not very ancient among the Hebrews, as they imply, especially the second, some degree of settled life. As to the embalming of the corpse, although this is mentioned in Genesis chapter 50 verses 2 and 3 of Jacob and in verse 26 of Joseph, we have no reason to believe that it was customary among the Hebrews these passages reflect Egyptian usage. The Babylonians embalmed the corpse in honey, according to Herodotus. The Jews and Arabs placed spices within the grave clothes. For a full account of the method of embalming among the Egyptians, see Herodotus, Book 2, Sections 85-90. through 90. The Greeks did not embalm the bodies of the dead. Regarding the clothing of the corpse, in the Old Testament it is implied that a man was buried in his ordinary clothes. In 1 Samuel chapter 28 verse 14, the witch of Endor describes the appearance of Samuel, on his coming up from the abode of the dead, as being covered with a robe, a description sufficient to enable Saul to declare that it is Samuel. The same is implied in Isaiah chapter 14 verse 9 and Ezekiel chapter 32 verse 27. But in the New Testament, special grave clothes of linen seem to be the custom. See Matthew chapter 27 verse 59, Mark chapter 15 verse 46, Luke chapter 23, 
John chapter 11, verse 44, and chapter 20, verses 6 and 7. This was also done in Talmudic times, it being considered a shameful thing to be buried naked. This, however, often occurred, especially among the wealthy, who could afford to be buried in stone sarcophagi and in built vaults. But among the poor, it was always the custom to be buried in grave clothes. The Babylonians, too, were usually buried in the same way, as well as the Greeks. But the Arabs were accustomed to be buried in the clothes they usually wore in lifetime. Cremation among the Hebrews was abhorred. We may well believe that the reason of this was the conviction that the soul was in some undefined way connected with the body after death. Among the Hebrews, the burning of a dead body was reserved only for some of the worst criminals. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 14, chapter 21 verse 9, Joshua chapter 7 verse 25. But that the very idea of it was hateful is clear from Amos chapter 2 verse 1. For three transgressions of Moab, yea, for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. Compare Second Kings chapter 3 verse 27. Among the Arabs, too, burning of dead bodies was unknown. The Babylonians did not burn their dead. It is true, two vast finds of burnt bodies in regular cities of the dead in Babylonia have been unearthed in Koldaway in 1887. But, as Jeremias says, these are not Babylonian. The early Greeks burned their dead, but with the rise of higher culture, burying also became customary. 12. Disposal of the Dead it is necessary here to emphasize once more the parallel views held regarding the belief in immortality among the Israelites, viz. the popular and the official. A Sheol belief of some kind was undoubtedly ancient. All the evidence points to this. But it became greatly modified with the rise of the religion of Yahweh. The normal teaching in the Old Testament represents Sheol as a closed city from which there was no exit. Such a view was quite compatible with Yahweh worship, because it excluded any idea of relationship between the living and the dead. The ancient belief was very different. Here Sheol was, indeed, the abode of the dead, but it was not the closed city which it became in later days. The souls, not mere shades, of men who went there, could and did hover around and in the neighborhood of the body, and which it was in some undefined way attached even after death. The care of the body, of its supposed wants, and of the place where it lay were, therefore, matters of paramount importance. In view of the latter official teaching, these things ought to have been altogether unnecessary. Very likely, this was the opinion of the official teachers, but it is certain that they found it quite impossible to do away with the immemorial usages of the people regarding their dead. The tenacity with which these were clung to shows the deep-seated belief that the dead had consciousness and power. The matters to be considered in this section and in the next, which will show the immense solicitude the Israelites had for the corpse's place of rest and for its supposed requirements, would be incomprehensible, except on the supposition that there was believed to exist a relationship of some kind between the soul and the body after death. A word must first be said about the horror among the Israelites at the idea of an unburied corpse. The most terrible judgment upon the kingdom for its wickedness, which the prophet can conceive of, is uttered in this way. At that time, saith Yahweh, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah, 
and the bones of his princes, and the bones of the priests, and the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, out of their graves. And they shall spread them before the sun and the moon, and all the host of heaven, whom they have loved, and whom they have served, and after whom they have walked, and whom they have sought, and whom they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered, nor be buried. They shall be for dung upon the face of the earth. Jeremiah chapter 8 verses 1 and 2 Again it is said of the wicked that this shall be their punishment. They shall have none to bury them, them, their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters. For I will pour their wickedness upon them. Jeremiah chapter 14 verse 16 Compare chapter 7 verse 33 Chapter 9 verse 22 Chapter 16 verse 4 See also 1 Kings chapter 13 verse 22 Chapter 14 verse 11 Chapter 16 verse 4 Chapter 22 verse 24 Second Kings chapter 9 verse 10 Ezekiel chapter 29 verse 5 Psalm 79 verse 2 through 4 if any one came across a dead body anywhere, it was his duty to bury it. Compare the passages just referred to and Tobit chapter 1 verse 17 and chapter 2 verses 3 through 8. According to the Deuteronomic Code, burial was to be accorded even to criminals who had suffered the death penalty by hanging. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 22 and 23. An interesting notice in Joshua chapter 7 verses 24 through 26 shows that when a man suffered the death penalty of being stoned, his body was covered over with a heap of stones. The horror of a dead body lying unburied was due to the same cause which impelled men to cover over blood which had been shed, whether of man or beast. See Leviticus chapter 17 verse 23, Genesis chapter 37 verse 26. Such uncovered blood cries for vengeance. See Ezekiel chapter 24 verses 7 through 8. Compare Genesis chapter 4 verse 10, Isaiah chapter 26 verse 21, etc. The reason was that the life or soul resided in the blood according to the old belief. See Leviticus chapter 17 verses 11 and 14. So that if it, or the body wherein it resided, was not covered, the soul would not be laid to rest, but would wander about harming men. How ingrained was the belief in the possibility of souls wandering about the earth may be gathered from the tenacity with which it was held by the Jews in later times. In a midrash belonging, in its present form, to the 5th century A.D., this belief, though it is not a question of unburied bodies, is thus expressed. The souls of the godless wander about the whole world, and shall find no place of rest for their feet. His soul that is, that of the godless, does not enter into the place it is destined for until twelve months have passed, that is, until the body has decayed. What does it do? It goes and comes again, always hovering around the grave, and it is painful for it to behold the body which is buried and which worms cover. This echoes ancient belief regarding the soul after death and the relation between the two. It was this wandering about of souls which was believed to take place if the body was unburied. If it was buried, the soul to which it belonged would be content, and the living would be safe from molestation. It was, therefore, for the benefit of the living that the dead body should have proper burial. But that is not all. The question naturally suggests itself as to why the unburied body should have the effect of making the spirit unquiet, and why should the spirit, in this case, wander about the earth and molest men? We have seen that the relationship between the body and the soul, or spirit, 
which there is in the living man, was believed to continue to exist in some manner after death, and the reason for this belief is not difficult to understand. It might, therefore, be argued that the want of respect shown to the departed by not burying his body was a source of annoyance to the spirit, which, for this reason, punished those who were responsible for this duty. But this answer is not wholly satisfactory, for one can conceive of the greatest care and reverence being shown to the body without according it burial. What the spirit wanted, according to ancient Hebrew belief, was the consignment of its body to the earth. And why? Lagrange has dealt with this in a very convincing way. He says, quote, The tabellae devotionis show that by means of the tomb not only are the living able to have communication with the dead man, but they are also able to send their messenger to the nether regions. There is thus a free passage from the tomb to the realm of the dead. It is frequently said that the idea of this realm is an amplification of the family tomb. It is in any case a very ancient idea, and may throw light upon our subject. The world, so far as our texts teach us, was divided into three realms, that of the gods, that of the living, and that of the dead. That of the dead was under the earth. The spirit of the dead belonged to it, naturally. Moreover, between the corpse and the soul, all relationship did not cease. If the corpse remained exposed to the air, the soul was prevented from descending to the lower regions, and found itself condemned to wander about on the earth, a domain to which it no more belonged. But if the corpse was buried, the soul could, according to will, either keep it company or rejoin the other souls. Close quote. It was, therefore, at least as much for the benefit of the deceased as for that of the living, that every care was taken to have the body properly buried. Indeed, one must say that this was primarily the object. The benefit to the living, which no doubt was believed to be very real, was only secondary. From what has been said, and especially from what is implied in the Old Testament passages mentioned, one sees how incompatible the official Sheol belief was with the current beliefs. The same fear of an unburied body is found among the Babylonians and Assyrians. Jastro says on the subject, quote, An unburied corpse was not only regarded as a curse among the deceased, but also as a danger to the living. The wandering shadow of the unburied sought to be revenged on the living by causing all manner of mischief. Certain demons which were believed to lurk in the neighborhood of graves were doubtless really identical with wandering spirits. In any case, it was necessary to protect oneself against the dead, who were able, under certain circumstances, to return to the earth and to plague those who were sick. It is on the basis of this conception that the many precautions which were taken among the Babylonians and Assyrians, as well as among all other peoples, to keep the dead within their graves, are to be explained. The Assyrians called the grave the abode of eternity, a name which implies that the body required a permanent dwelling place. It is, therefore, precisely what we should expect when we find in the Old Testament many references to the careful burying of the dead. And there is something peculiarly significant in the phrase, to be gathered to the people. Genesis chapter 25, verses 8 and 17, chapter 35, verse 29, compare chapter 15, verse 15, or to sleep with one's fathers. Genesis chapter 47 verse 30, or to be buried with one's fathers. Genesis chapter 49 verse 29, that is, to lie in the same sepulchre with them. 
second samuel chapter seventeen verse twenty three chapter twenty one verse fourteen see also numbers chapter twenty seven verse thirteen chapter thirty one verse two chapter thirty two verse fifty first kings chapter thirteen verse twenty two chapter fourteen verse thirty one chapter fifteen verses eight and twenty four etc for this meant a gathering together again which was believed to take place in the sepulchre a belief none the less real for being vague and undefined interesting in this connection was the old custom of burying in houses a reference to this has been made above but a few more details are well worth giving here this custom is only rarely spoken of in the old testament in first samuel chapter twenty five verse one for example it is said that they buried samuel in his house at ramah compare first kings chapter two verses ten and thirty four chapter eleven verse forty three chapter fourteen verse thirty one ezekiel chapter forty three verses seven through nine but these all refer to kings but recent excavations in palestine have proved that in the earliest period of the israelite monarchy this was not a rare occurrence in one of his reports on the excavation of ancient gazer mr mcallister says quote, that in early times the dead were buried within the city walls is shown not only by the burial cave of the most ancient inhabitants but also by the occurrence of skeletons among the house walls of the upper strata these seem to show that in late pre-israelite and early jewish times the dead were buried not only within the city but even within the houses there is a good deal of evidence showing that the babylonians buried their kings in palaces as did the israelites langdon says that the earliest graves are found in the temple courts whether or not the babylonians and assyrians ever buried their dead in houses does not seem to be known for certain though in view of the widespread character of the custom it is probable that they did Caldeve writes on the subject as follows quote, in babylon the dead were buried by the fortification walls in the streets and in such parts of the inhabited town as were unappropriated for dwelling-houses at the time of the burial the house ruins of an earlier period were often encroached upon and where the ancient walls were recognizable the pit was dug parallel with them where they were not recognizable the walls of the ancient house were often cut through by the grave while the wall of a later building period once more turned off from the burial site if an ancient brick pavement was reached this also was frequently cut through and the sarcophagus lay partly above and partly below it from such clear cases against which situations that cannot be made out can adduce no conclusive evidence it can be distinctly seen that in babylon at any rate no interments took place inside inhabited houses evidently it is not easy to say for certain whether there were house burials or not moreover this evidence only refers to the city of babylon on the other hand there is plenty of evidence for this among the ancient arabs those who lived a settled life buried their dead either in the houses or nearby an interesting illustration of this occurs in an ancient arabic poem part of which runs thus the people have a burying place around the courtyard square the graves increase in number but the living get more rare the dwelling-place may ancient grow in ruins it may fall still grows the number of the dead beside the courtyard wall the living as their neighbors have the spirits of the dead though intercourse with them is rare since far away they've sped among the nomadic bedouins it was of course different 
with the rise of islam the custom was forbidden though muhammad himself was buried in his house and by his side his first successors among the israelites the custom must soon have ceased with the growth of the population following upon settled life though the evidence shows that kings continued to be buried in their palaces there are very many natural caves in palestine and these were utilized as burial places see for example genesis chapter twenty three verse one and following second kings chapter twenty three verse sixteen etc from the importance attached to the possession of such it is easy to see the need felt for a fitting abode for the dead artificially hewn out sepulchres in the rock are also referred to what doest thou here and whom hast thou here that thou hast hewed thee out here a sepulchre hewing him out a sepulchre on high graving an habitation for himself in the rock isaiah chapter twenty three verse sixteen compare second chronicles chapter sixteen verse fourteen matthew chapter twenty seven verse sixty these are the only types of burial places mentioned in the old testament so far as family sepulchres and tombs for individuals are concerned but other types existed such as those sunk in the rock like the ordinary modern grave or cut out of the face of the rock or chambers with vaulted roofs in which the body lay upon a small raised platform these have all been found in abundance by travellers and excavators in palestine then there were of course the ordinary public cemeteries these too have been discovered by modern explorers but they are only incidentally mentioned once or twice in the old testament for example jeremiah chapter twenty six verse twenty three and they fetched forth uriah out of egypt who slew him with the sword and cast his dead body into the grave of the common people compare isaiah chapter fifty three verse nine second maccabees chapter nine verse four thirteen provision for the departed it is very doubtful whether the old testament really contains more than one reference to the practically universal custom of antiquity of providing food and other requirements for the departed in deuteronomy chapter twenty six verse fourteen it is certainly implied that this was done by some but in hosea chapter nine verses three and four jeremiah chapter sixteen verse seven leviticus chapter twenty one verse six ezekiel chapter twenty four verse seventeen the reference is to the funeral feast and offerings to the dead in the apocrypha there are also one or two references thus in tobit chapter four verse seventeen it is said pour out thy bread and thy wine on the tomb of the just in the wisdom of ben sirah chapter seven verse thirty three the precept is given acceptable is a gift to every living man and also from the dead withhold not kindness one must distinguish between an offering to the dead which comes under the head of the cult of the dead and gifts of food etc which the dead were believed to require the distinction is a real one though the two things may seem at first to belong to the same category the last two passages cited however show clearly that there was no thought of worship in the act but merely the giving of a gift to the dead just in the same way as a gift was given to a living man the two things continued side by side for many ages but among the jews the giving of gifts evidently continued when there was no thought of the worship of the dead there is no rite in connection with the dead in ancient times which has been more profusely illustrated through the work of excavators than this one it will be worth while to give a few examples of this we shall restrict ourselves here to excavations in palestine 
as the material is so immense if the subject is treated more widely that the space at our disposal would not suffice the important excavations on the site of ancient gazer carried out by the palestine exploration fund 1902 onwards have brought to light some finds which offer interesting illustrations of the subject in hand among the seven strata excavated the two lowest do not concern us as they are pre-semitic but the third and fourth though in the main pre-israelite are amorite that is semitic and belong to about two thousand b c more or less in the fourth stratum a burial cave was discovered the extremely interesting questions raised by what was found in this cave must not detain us as we are here only concerned with objects deposited for the benefit of the departed these consisted of the remains of spears of bronze only the metal remaining the wood handles having of course rotted away long since a knife an axe-head and a needle besides these there was a three-legged fire-dish for cooking this was broken and inverted over some sheep-bones no doubt as mr mcallister says the remains of a food deposit he adds that quote, it is not quite safe to assume that the fracturing of the fire-dish is in accordance with the well-known custom of fracturing objects deposited in graves that their spirits may be released and minister to the needs of the spirits of the departed the discovery of the ruins of a temple on the gazer site belonging to the israelite period revealed the gruesome picture of a number of newborn infants in large jars the bodies were mostly put in head first in each of the jars there were two or three small vessels usually a jug and a bowl that is food and drink for the departed spirits there can be no doubt that we have here infant sacrifices such were offered as is well known by the canaanites phoenicians and arabs the practice is also referred to in the old testament see second kings chapter three verse twenty seven chapter sixteen verse three chapter seventeen verse seventeen chapter twenty one verse six chapter twenty three verse ten micah chapter six verse seven jeremiah chapter seven verse thirty one ezekiel chapter sixteen verse twenty and following chapter twenty verse twenty six chapter twenty three verse thirty seven but it is not with this subject that we are now concerned the jug and the bowl by the side of or near the body of each infant illustrate the belief that the spirit needed these things there can be no doubt that when first deposited these vessels had food and drink in them other examples are those of some canaanite tombs excavated these had in some cases food deposits in others vessels for drink the latter were large jars pointed at the bottom but they were all placed upright showing that originally they contained drink in each jar there was also a small jug obviously a drinking vessel Quote, the recognizable remains of food consist of cooked fragments of mutton identified by the bones remaining these are placed in saucers or dishes in the middle of one such deposit a bronze spearhead was left perhaps to enable the deceased to cut the meat and another bowl was inverted over the hole presumably to keep it warm in other tombs belonging approximately to the same period circa twelve hundred b c there were also found vessels with food similar things were found in the excavations at tel el mutesalim taanach and megiddo vincent gives an illustration of an elamite tomb where the hand of the body is in a dish in the attitude of taking to food 
Before we come to a brief and final word regarding the conceptions which prompted the depositing of these food vessels for the benefit of the departed, a slight reference must be made to the lamp and bowl deposits which have been found in such abundance in tombs of Palestine. This subject was briefly mentioned above. Here we may give a few examples. They have been found in various kinds of graves arranged in different ways but mostly the lamp is in the middle with bowls above and below or around they have also been found buried under house walls and immediately under door jams a special peculiarity about the bowls is that they have been made watertight by a kind of lime having been smeared over them a fact which leads as Mr. McAllister points out, to the natural supposition that when first deposited they had some liquid poured into them. He says further that, quote, this liquid most probably was either blood or grape juice, which later, in toned-down sacrificial rites, often takes the place of blood. For evidence is gradually accumulating that these foundation deposits are primarily sacrificial, and that a human victim was immolated in the original form of the rite. We have already seen that infant bones are found buried under house walls. The vessel with the blood or grape juice would thus represent the sacrifice while the lamp would symbolize the fire of the sacrifice. This is extremely ingenious. But while it may quite conceivably hold good for the lamp and bowl deposits under foundations, it is not altogether easy to accept this explanation of their presence in ordinary graves. It can, of course, be argued that in these later cases, the deposits symbolize what was aforetime a sacrifice to the dead, and in principle we do not see that any objection to this can be raised. But it is possible that a much simpler explanation will suffice, and this leads us again to the general subject of food and other deposits in graves. These consist not only of food and drink, but there are arms, whether for fighting or hunting, knives, ornaments, armlets, seals, perfumes, etc. All things, that is to say, which were used in the lifetime of the deceased. The seals are especially instructive, since they were constantly required in a man's lifetime as standing for his signature. But among the things that were much required, and, as we know, much used, were lamps. Might it, then, not have been thought that the deceased, who needed all the things to which they had been accustomed when alive, would need these as much as anything, being constantly in the dark in their new abode? While Mr. McAllister may be perfectly right in his theory, so far as the bowl and lamp deposits in foundations are concerned, this need not militate against their serving a different purpose in ordinary graves. As to the reason or reasons of these grave deposits, the custom may be looked upon as a pious act of loving thoughtfulness. It was a firm belief, worldwide in its character, among men of undeveloped culture, that after death life was continued under very much the same conditions as heretofore and since the departed might well experience some difficulty in obtaining what they required, the living felt it to be their bounden duty to supply this. But once more, we have more than once referred to the fact that the return of the departed among the living, a possibility which was fully recognized, was regarded as a thing to be prevented if possible. It is, therefore, quite conceivable that by making the deceased comfortable and content, by supplying him with all that he might reasonably require, the danger would be avoided of his coming back to trouble the living. 
both reasons may well have been responsible for the custom if it be asked how men in these bygone ages could have regarded it as sufficient to deposit only one supply of food the reply must be that probably originally the thing was done on the principle of sympathetic magic the custom having then once come into vogue would have continued as is so often the case without further question much of what has been said in the whole of this necessarily long chapter is open to criticism for various opinions are held on all the subjects dealt with but upon one point there can be no two opinions namely the intense belief in immortality to which all these rites and customs bear witness End of chapter eleven